Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book 2 Free Will and Other Compulsions A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Kitty McKeon George Clinsos Michael LaMangelo Chris Lester Michael Seltzer Stephanie Sawyer Derek Moore With original music by Danny Shade This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, Episode 8. Hi, this is Chris Lester. Check out my new podcast, The Raven and the Writer's Desk, airing soon at metamorecity.com and chrislester.org. Right now you're listening to Free Will, and this is the story so far. The long transit between Nineveh and Luna has given High Court Judge and secret revolutionary mastermind Douglas Reeves some time to plan his next moves. With an organization he's not sure he can trust, and fast-moving events threatening to change the strategic landscape, he needs to make his move, but the wrong move could blow his chances entirely. Meanwhile, after disposing of some personal matters of her own, underworld boss Cassie Orenthal has business to attend to, and in her absence, all has not been well with the Syndicate. And now, Episode 8 of Free Will and Other Compulsions. Chapter 2 Continued 20 November, 2129 Be advised that Luna City is now on security lockdown. Keep your luggage in sight at all times. No projectile weapons permitted within 500 meters of an exterior room. If you have secured cliff-based accommodations, please check your weapons with the hotel concierge. Attention all passengers and travelers. Welcome to Luna City's Grissom Spaceport. Be advised that Luna City is now on security lockdown. Doug stepped aboard the Terminal B tram and slid his hand through a grab loop. His assistant, Hakeem, just made it onto the car behind him before the door slid shut, muting the repeated announcement blurring through the terminal. Doug twisted and ducked so he could meet the shorter man's height. When did they start the lockdown? Yesterday. They're meeting now to expand it and make it permanent. And they've not had any members of the judiciary present? Judge Drakeland's still in hospital from last week's attack. Nobody else with the clearance is currently in the city. Most of Luna City's judges did a regular circuit to other U.S. colonies on the planetoid, but of the six with top-level clearance, there was always supposed to be one in town at the disposal of the board. That's bloody convenient. Doug would have expected Greg Singh, at least, to have argued for continuing the meeting until they could have a judiciary member present to advise on charter matters, but perhaps the urgency created by the attacks made it politically impossible. What about free skies? Tabled until they deem it safe to entertain the delegations from Phobos and Gagarin. I suspect the matter will not be brought to the floor until the next opposition. Uh, we'll have to see about that. The tram slowed to a halt and the doors slid open at the gallery central station. Doug strode off and toward the gallery lifts, Hakim at his heels. What else do I need to know before I go in there? The coalitions are breaking down. Lockscore's lobbyists are pushing for appeasement. And the delegation from Darkseid is split between those who wish to ally us with Persia and those who advocating immediate independence at any cost. To avoid getting caught in the middle if there's a shooting war between the Persian and American fleets. Doug nodded. Do we know where they are? I'm not cleared for that. I see. Doug pulled out his PPD and punched up Greg Singh as he stepped onto the gallery lift. Any pending legislation that I should know about? Not privy to that. Like everything else, the regular channels are on lockdown. How's the public reacting? There has been a 24-hour party for the last two weeks in the bazaar. Mandelbrot has barred the security service from intervening. 
says the gathering is legal. Well, there's that at least. Doug finished his note to Greg. Have arrived in city. Meet me in the anteroom in six minutes. Anything else? I believe... Hakim seemed to be scrolling through his notes to make sure he hadn't missed anything. Oh yes, the Persian ambassador is scheduled to attend today's board meeting. Brilliant. The Persian fleet was on the move to God knew where, and they were entertaining the Persian ambassador at the board meetings. If Washington got wind of this, they'd be even further in the shit. The government level, Petra to the locals, was easily the most expansive of the underground caverns. Carved from a naturally occurring gas pocket from an ancient volcano, the irregular domed ceiling rose for a hundred meters above the flattened and graded obsidian floor. Every surface in this latter-day Acropolis, or more technically, Troglodopolis, shone with a fine polished shine. At the end of the main avenue, the capital retreated back into the rock, a beacon of indulgence in a sea of ostentation. Doug hurried up the stairs, through the domed annex, and into the antechamber next to the door, leaving Hakim to find his own way back to the office. Douglas, my friend, how good it is to see you on this most grating of afternoons. Greg Singh spread his arms. Doug indulged the quick embrace. Glad you could make it. <laughs> I've heard the board debate how to best fillet the Washington Monument before. Lux Corps pushing it? They would rather we call up the Senate and offer to have its babies. The stability of our fragile colonies at risk, and our mothers will all be sold into sexual slavery by the revolutionaries. Pah. Greg snorted and rolled his eyes. If they can't make their H3 deliveries, they'll lose their monopoly. Doug leaned up against the wall and tapped it with his fingertips, as if he could feel the debate coming through the marble veneer. They're going to hold the air over us. Do you think there is anyone in there who hasn't thought of that? What if... Doug turned his plan around in his head once more, trying to find the right hook for Singh. We took away their stick. Ah, it would be a terrible tragedy, would it not? All those happy fat cats suddenly needing to work for a living. Greg's lips pursed as if he were savoring the possibility without taking it seriously. Doug jerked his head toward the doorway, inviting Greg to follow him into the boardroom, then ducked around the corner and through the side door. The squat, hemispherical chamber had been constructed as a whispering gallery, allowing debate on the floor to range freely without the aid of an amplification system. The microphones were strictly for the benefit of those citizens who chose to watch the proceedings remotely. Along the back side of the chamber, a visitor's balcony cut into the dome and below it. The judiciary members' seats retreated a few meters into the alcove, acoustically isolated. As non-voting members, they served as constitutional and charter compliance advisors on proposed legislation and regulation, and thus had to petition for floor time. Greg, as an elected representative with seniority, had an assigned bench toward the front of the chamber, but he waved Doug toward the judiciary alcove. They took adjacent seats on one of the empty benches while the chairman adjudicated an argument between the delegates from Ring Alpha and First Town over a point of order. Greg crossed his arms and leaned close to Doug's left ear. So, my friend, tell me of your glorious plan to cut off Luxcourt's stick. Anyone can crack O2 out of the dirt. Doug shrugged as he whispered. Harvesting H3 isn't as easy, but it can be done. And if these bullets got you doing it, they'd peel your skin and hang it from a flagpole in the crater outside. What if, say, dark side started cracking and exporting? Doug felt Greg shift beside him. He'd suspected he might hit close to one of Greg's fantasy scenarios with the wind-up in this one. They'd turn off our air immediately. If they found out before you could supply your own. 
Greg chuckled and patted Doug on the shoulder as if the judge were quite simple. <laughs> Against a regulated monopoly, the board would evoke our mining charter. The board can't revoke what it doesn't own. Doug reached forward to his bench and asked for a spot in the speaking queue. <laughs> they would try. Lockscore is already steering policy here. Greg jerked his chin toward the dais, where a member of the First Town delegation was arguing for extending the lockdown to martial law and surrendering local sovereignty as a rapprochement with Washington. Lockscore may be a regulated monopoly. Doug paused for emphasis. But it is publicly held, and their debts are publicly held. Greg drew his breath in sharply. My God, but you are right. Out of the corner of his eye, Doug saw his cue light turn yellow. He would be expected on the dais in two minutes. Doug leaned in closer to Greg, more for emphasis than from fear of being overheard. We can live without their oxygen. America can't live without the H3, and they think we can't live without the locks. Doug drew back. Greg's face had gone pale, but the man's eyes sparkled with the most dependable of human emotions. Greed. Doug pushed one farther. Debt can do terrible things when you forget your balance sheet. And every locks is a debt voucher. But before he finished saying it, Greg had already gotten there. The man's gallows grin could have curdled goat milk at ten meters. Douglas, my friend, we are going to have such fun. Dinner next week? I cannot wait. The chair recognizes the distinguished ombudsman, his honor Douglas Reeves. Doug stood. As he slid past Greg to the main aisle, he heard the politician mumble, These bastards are going to need fresh diapers. He swept past the forty elected delegates and mounted the dais, ignoring the grumbles that followed in its wake. Distaste for the judiciary? Perhaps. They evidently didn't expect any ombudsman present. More likely, it was his attire. The best he had for his trip still wasn't quite appropriate for his official capacity. Thank you. Doug took his place behind the podium, looking on the largely unsympathetic faces of the other delegates. The Persian ambassador sat with the dark side delegation on Greg Singh's normal bench. Fellow board members, please excuse my attire. I just docked 20 minutes ago. I've been at Nineveh for the last two and a half weeks. I'm sorry to report that the rumors are true. There is a revolutionary movement. It's well-funded and well-organized. They want the colonial government and the occupying powers gone, and they want it yesterday. I heard them talking about politics in a way I haven't heard in all my years on the bench. Tax problems. Fuck the Americans. No local sovereignty? Fuck Lockscore. Currency market games? Fuck Wall Street. Trade restrictions? Fuck the Board of Governors. War between Persians and Americans erupts out of the gravity well? Fuck them all. Washington knows it. Tehran knows it. Doug looked pointedly at the Persian ambassador. What we do here in the next days and weeks will decide what the revolutionaries will line up against. The things I saw and heard have convinced me that the Tehran governments have infiltrated this movement and are pulling its strings. Doug paused to wait for the expected objections, but none came. They were waiting for the other shoe while the Persian ambassador squirmed in his seat. There will be more bombings. It is my belief that if we align ourselves with Washington, the Persian fleet will attack. The revolutionaries will turn on us directly. Though I have no authority to propose it, I urge you to consider the motions before you carefully. I urge you to lift the lockdown. 
I urge you to reopen debate on the Free Skies Treaty. I urge you to protect our liberty. You hold the future of the solar system in your hands. Our autonomy, our authority, our lives, and our world depend on what we do in this room. Thank you. Doug stepped back from the podium. He turned left, walked off the dais, and left the chamber. As the doors closed behind him, the room erupted into pandemonium. Luna City Opera House, 23 November, 2129. Zyler placed his left foot in front of his right, then his right foot in front of his left, as if walking a balance beam. His hands both clasped behind his back, holding on to the small scepter he now habitually carried. Five years ago, he'd only been a Loxcore data monkey. A body could climb a long way in five years if he was smart enough. Zyler was smart enough. Smart enough to see Cassie's grip on reality slipping away as she concentrated too much on system politics and not enough on lobbying or business. Here at the center of her power, the gaudy gothic arches in the Juno Opera House testified to her neglect. Dust was starting to gather on the ledges three meters up because she'd forgotten to have the staff attend to the semi-annual cleaning for the last two years running, It showed on the sculptures in a most unseemly manner. He liked that word, unseemly. It wasn't one that people used much, but it gave a touch of class to what he had to admit, privately, was once a depressingly bourgeois vocabulary. Not that he'd ever confessed such a thing to his underlings. He'd covered his roots very well, thank you. Even his accent was exotic and muddled enough to keep people guessing. The man from everywhere... Yes, that was how he liked it. A man who would go everywhere, but would never lose control. Not like Cassie. Zyler sauntered his way up to her inner sanctum. The standard post-absence meeting, handing the reins back. Neither the chute funneling people to the waiting room, nor the overgrown apes she had guarding it had their intended effect on him. He'd known Cassie when she was nothing more than a gutter rat with an attitude as brash as her taste for blood, and recognized her attempt to slap a veneer of respectability on herself for the pathetic dodge that it was. The charisma had ceased to dazzle him a long time ago, but he allowed her to believe that she still impressed him. It kept the relationship useful. Besides, she'd been a friend for a long time, and in her saner moments, she wouldn't have wanted to see her entire organization destroyed because she'd taken a mad fascination with interplanetary politics too close to heart. Zyler walked through the trip beam that alerted Cassie to an incoming guest. By the time he hit the end of the narrow hall, Cassie's voice blared Come in. through a hidden speaker. The door before him slid aside. Zyler strode in, trying not to look as if he already owned the place. Cassie, as the Green Lady, sat on her throne, looking like she'd just prettied herself up after being dragged through an industrial dump. Worn, like she'd aged ten years in the last few months. Cass? He nodded a greeting, but based on their recent interactions, he didn't expect the same courtesy from her. In this respect, at least, she did not disappoint him. She continued reading whatever it was she had displayed on her tabletop. Zyler cleared his throat again and said found him. I'm very happy for you both. You'll make a lovely couple. Do you have the updates I asked for? Already in the box. Cassie, I found him. 
Did you finish the security audit? She still hadn't looked up at him. Yes, I bleeding finished it. Cassie, if you don't drop the act... You'll what? She didn't shout. Her voice wasn't even sharp. Shoot me? Beat me within an inch of my life? (laughs) Have my friends tortured? Challenge me to a duel? She sounded tired. More tired than he thought she could. Although it gave him a certain amount of satisfaction, Siler couldn't pretend, even to himself, that he was exactly happy about it. Angels, even ones from hell, shouldn't fall through sheer decrepitude. But there it was. If you don't give me half an ear, you're gonna lose the plot. Oh? I found your missing man. Her overly painted countenance blinked blankly in his direction. Where? He topped himself in a bombing out of Terminal 8 two weeks ago. Mayhappy was careless. Backtracked him to Nineveh around the time of that bar bombing. Really? It wasn't really a question. You stood in this room three months ago and told me he wasn't a security problem. He wasn't. He blew up a piece of the spaceport. Which draws no attention whatever to the organization. Cassie opened her mouth, shut it again. Then, upon further consideration, pursed her lips at him as if he had just said something breathtakingly stupid. Zyler knew that poker face. He had her on the run. Nothing leaked from the docks, not the operations, not the protocols, not the cargo manifests, not the books. Tight as an African drum. Our dockside security is my business, and I did it upright, per spec, while you were gone from your post. I did my job without so much as a thank you from someone what should have been fucking polite about it. Now, we good? I got some info on a board member you'll be wanting. Could be with a few locks in the end and all. Cassie buried her head in her hands and rubbed her temples. I swear to God, I don't need this asinine... (sighs) She muttered, not quite loud enough for him to catch it all. Zai, take a look around you. We don't exist if someone gets curious. We operate on the margins. We can't do business if someone gets nervous and cuts out the bleed space. Did you ever wonder why in your four years at Corps you never got bumped up into corporate strategy? You don't see past the end of your balance sheet. Our internal security means shit if the board, or worse, the Senate, declares martial law. It's not a problem, Cassie. It's not something we can control. Oh? And how do you expect to pass contraband when there's a federal inspection team with sniffers and full log scanners on every dock? Zyler snorted. They'd never do that. They couldn't afford it. Ain't worth the money for what you'd catch. We'll just move out to the ring. Where the warships will park. We have a responsibility to the people. No, Cass. Bad business. More interference means better prices. What we sell is harder to get. Higher profits. You keep thinking like a politician is going to sink this syndicate. Cassie looked at him with the steady eye he'd seen her give too many other people who later disappeared. Good job he'd seen to his own security already. It's my syndicate to sink. And what about your friends, us that put our asses on the line for you? Dems whose livelihoods you're playing God with. Where's your responsibility to them? Enough. Not loud, but sharp. Her voice could still put a chill through him, even though he knew better than to bow to her baser instincts now. It was a lesson that took some learning, but learning was part of the job. If you don't like the rules, you don't have to play. Your choice. She waited for him to back down. He knew he'd have to if anything he'd been working on was to pay off, but he dragged the moment out long enough that she'd get the point. Then he said, I'm still in. Good. So what's this other matter? 
Zyler quickly gave her the rundown on his cast party run-ins with Greg Singh, Dan Haight from the First Town Delegation, and Security Commissioner Muriel Mandelbrot. The first two both had fairly loose lips under the right conditions, and he'd managed to get his ears on a handful of secrets that could be very useful as a second-string defense of the dock operations zone of autonomy. Everything by the book, buy the dock's contract honestly up front, protect the investment from poachers by blackmail, extend it to favor swap. Everyone happy, everyone paid, everybody under control. Cassie approved, then asked, How are the docks? It's smooth. That's what you said last time. Oh yeah, I don't like it. No official sniffing, nobody even tried to move anything under the radar for a month now. I wonder. I don't like the way it smells. Think someone's found a new way in? Oh, they started doing Nando's up at the ring, getting around our boys. I'll look into it. Meantime, double up on the inspection wall. Someone might have found a new way to wrangle cargo past our teams. She trailed off, another thought pushing its way across her face. Cass? Nothing. It just occurred to me that it could be an attempt to get us to lower our guard. How much of the unscheduled contraband comes through from the Persian zone? Enough. And the ones that try to cheat? Most of it. See what we need to do to get some of our people on the front line at the ring. Throw some deal sweeteners to our usual customers. Oh yeah, will do. They spent the next half hour going through odds and ends, redistributing the administrative workload from Cassie the absentee landlord mode to Cassie the involved godmother mode. Cassie claimed she'd be on the ground indefinitely, and thanked him for his help while she was away. He didn't believe her on either count. One last thing. She tapped the active interface of her desk. Mr. Fleet, will you join us? The chamber's second door, Cassie never operated without an emergency exit, though Zyler hadn't seen where she kept it before now, opened in the wall opposite the main entrance. A man with sharp features and an angular widow's peak, tall enough to seem threatening even to a loony, shouldered his way through the door. This is Mr. Fleet. I've hired him to perform an audit. You're to see that he has full access to the docks and all records and personnel. All? All. Feel free to use him if you need extra muscle. He's habituated to Martian normal. On top of everything else, a snoop to keep occupied. Lady Luck had teamed up with Lady Green to take a holy shit on top of his day. Wasn't any sense arguing, though. Cassie was on one of her micromanaging binges and would probably stay that way until she got laid. Which begged the question, where the hell was her pet dancer? All right. Mr. Fleet. He nodded at the interloper. Come around my office tomorrow morning. I'll set you up with access. Thank you. The hired muscle nodded with deference. Polite, as weasels went. On his trip out of the maze-like opera house, Zyler tapped his scepter across his back lightly. Once, not long ago, he'd have gladly laid it at her feet in something other than a mockery of submission ode. Not anymore. It was the job of a good second to relieve his general when she was incapable of doing her job properly. Submission now would be contrary to duty, or soon would be. One day soon, dawn would come too fast. She would wake up and realize that she'd lost everything she built. Only one piece of the operation ran well no matter what. Come war or terrorists or crackdowns, the cargo moved and the black markets stayed well supplied. When that day came, with her empire in tatters around her, with no one left to lie to, she'd have one place to turn. An old friend. Zyler would graciously pick up the pieces after her. In his patience and generosity, 
he would allow her a more dignified retirement than she deserved. For now, there was cargo to move. The crowd in the bazaar had spread to the spaceport. Soon they'd be in the way. A minor problem, easily fixed. He even knew the easy way in. He used his PPD to dial Muriel Mandelbrot's office. Muriel, this is Zai. I got a problem. Wonder if you could give me a hand. Ten minutes later, he had a promise of crowd control and the number for the tip line to TGN, just in case. Some good publicity, and getting the riffraff cleared off, and everything else would get a lot easier. Particularly now that his patron was pushing to have the timetable moved up. You've been listening to Episode 8 of Free Will and Other Compulsions, Book 2 of the Antithesis Progression, written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer, with original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. This episode starred Kitty McKeon as the announcer, Michael Seltzer as the chairman, Michael Lamangelo as Hakeem and Xylar Portillo, George Clensos as Douglas Reeves, Chris Lester as Greg Singh, Stephanie Sawyer as Cassie Orenthal, and Derek Moore as Jim Hartman. Public domain sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds created by Kitty Nikian and Artistic Whispers Productions. This podcast is recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Lincoln City, Oregon. The book is copyright 2009 J. Daniel Sawyer, and the production is copyright 2010 to 2015 Artistic Whispers Productions. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Persistence. Practice. Perseverance. If you want to write, you need them all. But to win the writing game, you can never, never, never stop learning. Now, for a limited time only, multiple award-winning author and international bestseller Christine Catherine Rush brings you The Right Stuff at StoryBundle.com. This 11-book craft and business toolkit shows you how to move from idea to novel, with or without an outline, beat writer's block and win NaNoWriMo, and make the most of your fantasy world whether it has horses or dragons. You'll also get step-by-step guides on how to set up your writing business, produce your own audiobooks, cope with reversals in traditional publishing, and keep your head in the game with your traditional, hybrid, or indie. Get your copy of The Right Stuff now at storybundle.com. Act now. Offer ends June 3rd. Hello, 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 and how are you? Second episode after the long break. Uh, Granted, I know it wasn't on the regular two-week schedule, but we're getting back. It feels good for real to be back and the story's really starting to crank up and we're heading into some territory that's some of my favorite of anything I've ever written not that that ought to affect what you think of it but yeah we're friends here right I can geek out a bit the reason it's my favorite well partly it was a fun challenge weaving it all together but some of it is the coloring of retrospect I got very lucky with the timing of this book I wrote it just before Occupy Wall Street and Arab Spring turned the world upside down for a little while, and reading it and listening to it again makes for some unintentionally spooky tingles up my spine. And you'll get to find a little more about why later in the story. The science fiction writer's dirty little open secret is that we don't 
actually predict the future. We just try to make up something that's plausible. Oh, I wish we could predict the future. If we did, we'd all be living the good life on investments that never went wrong. But we can't. The best we can do is fake it. When one of our predictions, that's writer code word for insane guess, winds up coming true, well, I suppose I can't speak for any other writers, but it throws me for a hell of a loop. But from time to time, in emails and on Twitter and on Dealing In, you guys ask me about the historical backstory of Antithesis, the future history, how I came up with it, and where you can learn more about it other than, you know, waiting for book three. Well, the truth is, I extrapolated this world based on what I thought was the least likely to happen while it was still kind of plausible. And this was back in the mid-1990s when I first sketched the rough outline of this out, and I refined it in the years between about 1995 and about 2005. So here's what I came up with as the least likely plausible scenario as I laid it out for myself in the late 90s. And I had to dig through notebooks to find this in boxes that were in the back of the pile in the new house here. So just so you guys know what I went through for you. I posited a world where the United States was still at the top of the heap, not because it was still growing and dynamic, but because it was smart about its trade deals and expanded its free trade zone from the 50 states to the whole of North America. In this world, Mexico became an economic powerhouse in the early 21st century, while Canada fragmented when Quebec finally pulled away, and Western Canada joined with the U.S. because, cut in two, the younger half of the continent found the older half more difficult to deal with, and the split geography made maintaining all of Canada difficult and expensive. So the United States of North America, dominated politically by Western and formerly Mexican states, goes through a major cultural shift where the political parties realign and the techno-progressives out West and down South push hard in one direction, while the older, more conservative, industrial-era economies and political parties of the East and South push the other direction, leading to the kind of protracted stalemate between East and West that we've seen between North and South in previous decades and centuries. Meanwhile, halfway around the world, Europe had gone into terminal demographic and economic decline, and largely loses its war with a terrorist coalition called the New Caliphate, which is trying to revive the Ottoman Empire. The New Caliphate doesn't hold on to power effectively, though, because new fuels and extraction methods render much of the Middle East's oil and um, energy production economically irrelevant. With Saudi Arabia bankrupt, a regional war erupts in the Middle East, dragging in Russia and finishing off its post-Putin collapse. Though at the time I mapped this out, I didn't know about Putin. I just assumed that the KGB would wind up taking over everything. This war eventually grows to engulf India and Pakistan, which draws China into the crossfire as it tries to shore up its own demographic collapse with an imperialist push throughout East Asia, and this ends in a more or less accidental nuclear war between the three powers in about 2060. Now, this leaves Iran as the most powerful regional player, and in what has to be the least likely proposition in the entire backstory, it renames itself Persia, revives the national religion of Zoroastrianism, and evangelizes it aggressively as a way of distancing itself from the Muslim-Hindu conflict, the new caliphate, and the whole mess. Iran quickly comes to dominate international affairs in the northern half of the eastern hemisphere, but it runs into trouble with its neighbors in Africa. 
Now, throughout all this time, Africa has become the most dynamic, nimble place on the planet. Vertical farming has solved their food supply problem. They have abundant solar and nuclear energy to offset the relative paucity of fossil fuels on the continent. And beginning with Nigeria, the nations of Africa rise very quickly to become the premier of first world technology and standards of living. The Persian Empire makes major missionary inroads into Africa, while Ethiopia, Nigeria, and the Gold Coast become its major trading partners. By the early 22nd century, the two regions become locked in a fairly profitable and prosperous symbiotic relationship, with Persia setting the military and political agenda while Nigeria sets the economic agenda. But it is the construction of the first space elevator in 2110 that finally puts both hemispheres into conflict again. The Persians want the cheap access to space and its resources, and the Americans don't want to share. South America, filled with nations that have largely maintained their independence from either superpower, is caught in the middle as Persian forces gradually invade Patagonia and make a slow but deliberate push up the spine of the Andes for Ecuador, establishing supply lines through terrain that nobody can adequately police. So that's the backstory. That's my future history. Now, get ready for the biggest what-the-fuck spine-tingle of them all. I worked this scenario out because it was the least likely outcome of current politics I could imagine. And I just wanted to play with ideas. I didn't really want to predict the future. Then, last month, as I started ramping up research to write Book 3, I ran across a book called The Accidental Superpower by Peter Zion. This guy runs a large private intelligence firm. He's on the Council of Foreign Relations. He's one of these international geopolitical guru types. This book, which was just published in uh, like December of 2014, lays out about 80% of the above scenario, delves deep into the economics and demographics, and argues that it's one of the most plausible scenarios that's currently on offer in the foreign relations community. I, frankly, couldn't believe it. But checking other geopolitical think tanks and publicly available information from intelligence agencies show that there's a lot about it that might actually happen. So, if you ever want to know what it looks like when an author gets stupid lucky with his so-called predictions, here you go. If nothing else, The Accidental Superpower is a fascinating and kind of infuriating read. And since you're listening to Antithesis, I figure you might have a passing interest in fascinating, infuriating things, or at least in geopolitics. Now, what do I think of all of this? Well, actually, after reading Zion's book, I think some of my scenario is less likely than I used to because of all kinds of things he explicitly doesn't take into account because there's no way to account for it. Things like new technologies that disrupt the nature of energy production rather than just disrupting the economics of it. But it is interesting anyway, and is already helping me fill some world-building holes that I was running into with Book 3. Anyway, uh, totally worth a read. Uh, it's very readable, accessible to the layman. Um, you don't have to be a foreign policy wonk to enjoy it and uh, find it interesting enough to make you shout at the wall. So uh, check it out if you're into that sort of thing. Anyway, enough of that. News from the wheelhouse. I'm hoping we'll have another next 10,000 hours for you next week, but things are really busy around here. Um, making the freelancer life work, total scramble, but, you know, good thing. So it might be all I can do to keep up with free will just now, or, you know, try to keep up with free will just now. 
but I am slowly getting everything done on Free Will, and you guys are helping. The tweets and the link love you've given in the last couple of weeks have really raised my spirits when they've needed some raising. Um, and special thanks, special thanks really guys, you rock, to Travis and Logan and Zanko, our first three official Patreon supporters. You'll all three be getting your first reward releases before the next episode. For all of you, that means an ebook copy of Free Will and a blooper reel covering the last few episodes. And for two of you, that also means a pre-release ebook copy of Suave Rob's Rough and Ready Rugrat Rapture. Any of the rest of you listening can also get those rewards if you sign up before they ship, which will be about a week from the time this episode drops. Learn all the details at patreon.com slash jdsawyer. And remember that a portion of all your donations, whether from Patreon or through the tip jar at jdsawyer.net, go to our fabulous composer, Danny Shade. Feedback is always welcome. Blogs, tweets, evangelism of any kind. Send emails to me at feedback at jdsawyer.net or use the contact form on the website. Or call the voice line and leave a message at 434-9-DEAL-IN. That's 434-933-2456. Thanks for listening this week. I'll have more story for you a couple weeks from now. And until then, I leave you with the nagging questions. What will Jim learn from Zyler? Will he turn up a trail that leads back to Joss, or will he uncover the real power behind the moles in the Resistance? Will Cassie hold on to power when Zyler makes his move, and what will happen to her if he doesn't? And finally, what will happen to Joss and Allie when they rejoin the story in the next episode? Find out next time. And remember, it isn't whether you win or lose. It's how you rig the game.